Good morning again, church family. So very thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, so last week, uh, we saw how uh, it matters how we respond to Jesus, right? Uh, as he turned and described to his disciples and followers how they were to follow him, we saw that it matters how we respond and follow Jesus. And nowhere is this as true as when it comes to the idea of repentance. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, this, this idea this, uh, of repentance and what it, what it means. And so um, repentance was the call, uh, if you remember, of John the Baptist in preparing the way for Jesus. He came and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he began to preach repentance. And then Jesus came on the scene and his message was repent as he proclaimed the kingdom in his public ministry. And then we see the repentance was the call of the early church as they went out to fill the Great Commission. Uh, their call was to repent and be baptized, right? And so this was uh, consistently the call of the New Testament. And so understanding repentance, uh, what it means and, and, and how we participate in it, then is fundamental to understanding not only the New Testament, but also the very kingdom of God. And so in seeking to understand true repentance and what it means, there's hardly a better scriptural example uh, than a, a psalm that David penned uh, where he gives words to the need for repentance, the condition of our heart, the focus of our repentance, and the outcome of it. We find this recorded for us in Psalm 51. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, uh, that's where we'll be this morning with a brief uh, look at Second Samuel where this uh, was a response to. And so this psalm comes from an intensely uh, sinful time in David's life. It is hard for us uh, to read. It's hard for us to think about that David would fall this far. And, and that's encouraging uh, in a number of ways. Number one, even David sinned, right? Uh, David, the, the, the hero of some of the greatest stories in the Old Testament, right? David uh, that stood up against Goliath. And, and David, uh, who became God's king for Israel, the nation of Israel, and, and led, and David, the psalm writer, right? And, and David, uh, this is who we want to be, right? David, the man after God's own heart. But, but listen, even David sinned, right? There's a great uh, sermon I've referenced before where a pastor reminds us that we are, we are not David, right? In the great moments and victory of life. You're not David, and you're, you're dead is not Goliath, right? We don't, we don't force ourselves into the text, but I will say we are more like David in this story than we like to admit. David who falls short. David who chooses sin and then chooses more sin to cover it up. David who needs to be brought to his knees before God. That's the kind of David I know in my life that I find. And so as we seek to understand repentance, we're encouraged that even this great King David uh, sinned and fell short. But second, that through this psalm, God has ministered to his people across thousands of years in all kinds of circumstances, showing that even in our lowest points, God can use even the worst days of our life to bring life and light to others. God is sovereign and he will receive glory. If not for his mercy, then for his righteous judgment against sin. And so David, yes, sins greatly. And in this repentance, in this psalm, uh, so many have been encouraged and called to repentance themselves that God has continued to get glory and will continue to get glory as long as this scripture is proclaimed. And so here in Psalm 51, David opens his heart. He opens it to us so that we may learn not only from his mistakes, but that we might benefit from the truth God revealed to him during this very painful time. 
And so as we tackle the, the topic of repentance this morning, we're going to look at three elements of repentance, just for those of you who like to outline uh, three elements of repentance. And so before we get to that, I want to kind of give you a working definition of repentance. What is it? Uh, the, it's a church word, right? Uh, you don't hear that word outside of church a lot. And so what does repentance mean? And so as we study that word, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we get an idea that the simplest definition of the word is to turn back, right? To, to, to make a turn, to go in another direction. Um, that is the, the meaning of the Hebrew word, repent. It's to turn around and go a different way. The New Testament gives it, the Greek gives it this kind of feeling that it includes not just directionally, but mentally, right? Understanding that you're going the wrong way and understanding that there is a right way and turning. And so if we could give it just the simplest of definitions, it is to turn back. It is to be going in one way and after learning it is the wrong way to turn and go the other way. In the case of sin, it is to acknowledge that your way is wrong and you're headed away from God and to, by faith, turn from the very things that led you down that path to God and his truth, his way, and his life. Repentance not just touches our actions, but our very thoughts, right? The very core of who we are. Repentance is not just about doing better. Let's just start there from the beginning. Repentance is not trying harder. Repentance touches the very core of who you are. And it is turning both in your mind and your actions. And so it's more than just a way of thinking. And so as we get into repentance, I want you just to keep that in the forefront of your mind. We're going to look at three elements of repentance this morning. The first is uh, conviction. Conviction is the first step, if you will, the first element of repentance. And so the first element of repentance is a sense of wrongdoing, right? You have to be convicted of what you've done. This happened for David when God sent his prophet Nathan to him. So David had been in the season of sin, and God sent his prophet to confront David. Uh, David had committed a series of moral failures and violated God's law in the most heinous of ways. And seemingly unfazed by his actions, God now sends the prophet Nathan to be his vehicle of conviction for David. And so David, if you know the story, David is on the rooftop uh, during a season where he should have been at battle. And he looks out from the highest vantage point of the kingdom and he sees bathing on a roof uh, Bathsheba. And he commands for her to be brought to him. And, and the conviction even begins before then. A servant says, is that not Uriah's wife, right? The, the servant is trying to stop David from ever going that far. But David calls her. Uh, and then because of that union, there is a pregnancy. And instead of owning up to his sin, he decides that he will bring her husband back and try to trick him into uh, laying with his wife so that the whole thing will be covered and swept under the rug. But Uriah is an honorable man. And since the nation is at war, he, he doesn't go home. So then David realizes in desperation, the only thing he can do is just kill Uriah. But instead of doing it himself, he sends him back to the battle, carrying his own statement of death to the commander to have them send Uriah at the front. And when the, the, the battle gets the most intense, to draw back so Uriah will be killed. And then all of David's problems will go away, right? This is the season that David is walking in. And now as soon as Uriah is out of the picture, he brings Bathsheba as a new wife. And so Nathan comes to him one day. Nathan is a prophet of God, and uh, he comes to him, and he tells him a story. 
And in that story, there's this, this conviction happens. Conviction is simply God acting on our understanding. That is, God shows us our guilt and our sin. And for David, he did this through Nathan. So Nathan does this in a, in a story form. Nathan uh, is, if nothing, brilliant because no one comes in and just accuses the king, right? And so Nathan comes up with a story. He comes in, and I want to share that with you. It's in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, if you're one of those that like to follow along in your scripture, or if you want to make a little note there by Psalm 51, it's 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, Listen, there were two men in a certain city. One rich and the other poor, and the rich had, man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So Nathan tells him a very simple story. There was a man who had a bunch and a man who had little, and the man who had a bunch took advantage of the man who had little and took what he had to serve his own purposes. And David is angry, and he says, This man will not only repay it, but he deserves to die. And Nathan looks at David and says, You are the man. Right? The story is not about uh, two people, rich and poor. It's about you and Uriah. And although you had everything God had given you and he made you king over Israel and he's blessed you, you took what Uriah had and he valued the most. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Before Nathan says, you are the man, and exposes David, David responds to this gross injustice the way that we should respond to gross injustice, right? David is angry at what this man did, but until this point, mind you, David had been actively ignoring his own sin, right? He had been actively ignoring. He was angry at the man in the scenario, which is reasonable, but he goes one step further. This man deserves to die. No compassion, no mercy. He violated the poor man. He deserves to die, and I want you to see that oftentimes our response to other people's sin is because we are refusing to deal with our own, right? The way that he responded, this man deserves to die, not just re restore it, but to die, is David, I think, his own guilt and shame is welling up within him at his own sin. And a lot of times when we're least merciful, a lot of times when we're least patient with those who are sinning, it's because we have unrepentant and unconfessed sin in our own heart. And so David is, is ready to kill this man, and then Nathan says, it's you. God brought David face to face with his sin in no uncertain terms. That's what conviction does. It's coming face to face with their sin, no excuses, no extenuating circumstances, no reason you did it, just you and your sin before God. 
And that's what God did through Nathan. And Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, this will be one of the things he does. In John 16, he says, and when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the idea of convict there is to reprove or rebuke, but essentially to bring to light. To be under the Lord's conviction is to have your sin drug out of the darkness and laid bare before the light. That, that's what it means to be convicted. And listen, it's not a fun place to be under conviction. But it's a merciful place. Because God cannot deal with our sin until we see it for what it is. It, to see it like God sees it. Listen, God makes us aware of our sins so we will be driven to him to find forgiveness and restoration. Without conviction, there can be no repentance. And without repentance, there will never be forgiveness and reconciliation. We don't, we don't run from conviction, right? We don't ignore conviction because conviction is the very mercy of God telling us something is wrong, Right? And so conviction is a work of God. And the Bible says, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict us and, and convince us and bring these things to light. But listen, we don't stop with conviction. Getting honest about our sin or feeling bad about it is not repentance, right? So many times we see people and, and they, whether they come to church or they're reading their Bible, or someone speaks to them, and you can tell they're experiencing this conviction, and they can either ignore it, which so many do, or they can endure it till it fades, right? They can struggle, and they can, they can grip the pew, and they can fight and, and think about anything different, and then they can go to lunch, and by the afternoon, they'll start to feel it's okay, right? I just got caught up in the emotions. It's not a big deal. And they push, and they fight, and they harden their heart. And then God convicts them again and they push and they harden their heart and they continue in this pattern of sin. And they're not rejecting, listen, they're not rejecting the judgment of God, they're rejecting the mercy of God. Week after week, they're, they're pushing down the conviction, they're ignoring God's conviction, but conviction is not the point. Conviction moves us towards the next element of repentance, which is confession. God convicts us so we can get to the point where we will confess our sin. Look at what, this is all of what Psalm 51 is. Like when Nathan confronted David, his immediate response was, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It was plain, it was simple. David responded and confessed and said, I have sinned against the Lord. And sometime later, David sat down and wrote a more detailed expression of that, that confession and that wrestling he did after being confronted with his sin. And this is what we know as Psalm 51, where we see the depth and details of David's repentance. And so turn there now. By confession, we mean much more than simply admitting your sin, right? Confession is more than admitting your sin. It's not less than, but it is certainly more than. David gives us a good example in verses 1 through 12. In these verses, he confesses not just his sin, but the truth about God's character, the truth about his own condition, and the truth concerning his need. And those three categories are helpful in understanding our response to conviction. The first thing he confesses is God's character. Look at verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
David begins immediately with the mercy of God. If you were to experience any forgiveness, if he was going to find any atonement for his sin, it will be based on the mercy of God and nothing else. He then appeals to God's character as the basis of his plea. He says, have mercy on me according to what? Your steadfast love. And that word is, is loving kindness, right? Where, according to who you are, not according to who I am, right? David doesn't elevate himself. His position as king, his former uh, position as a psalm writer. He says, according to your character of loving kindness and according to your abundant mercy. When we confess, when we come to repentance, the first confession we make is that we need God's mercy. We need God to be who God says he is, which is a loving God and a, and a kind God and a merciful God, right? We come before him in humility and we acknowledge not only that God is the loving, merciful, kind God he's declared himself to be, but only he can accomplish what we really need. Blot out my transgressions. Literally, that word means rebellions. Like, I have rebelled against you, and I need you to blot it out. And the idea is to erase it from my ledger. God is the creator and rightful ruler of all the earth. Therefore, any violation of his law is just that rebellion. He is also a God that keeps record because he is also a just and holy God. When David comes before God, the first thing he does is he acknowledges and confesses his character. Yes, you are loving. Yes, you are kind. Yes, you are merciful. But you are also just and holy and righteous. And I know that my transgressions have been recorded because they've been against you. I've rebelled. My life has been a series of rebellions. I need you to do what only you could do and wipe that record Clean. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Listen, he is a God that can not only wipe out a record, but purify us. The word wash there is this idea of repeatedly washing, right? It's that you've, I've tried to get the stain out, God, right? The stain is too much. It's too in the fibers. I can't touch it. I need you to wash me over and over. Like wash me until I'm clean, right? The idea is like pounding right, the garment, to get every bit of dirt and grime and dust out of it, like wash me, cleanse me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And, and the idea there is, uh, one commentator said, if washing it won't do, do anything you have to to cleanse me from my sin. And David uses three words there to show the, the, the weight of sin. He uses transgressions, which is rebellion, he uses iniquity, which is moral failure, and he uses sin, which is simply missing the mark of what God's standard has called him to be. And so he says in no uncertain terms that this sin that in his life is against God, and he is in desperate need of God to move and to act. So when we come before God to confess, the first thing we acknowledge is his character. And the reason we need forgiveness, and we, we come before him because he's the only one that can give it, because the best attempts we have are trying to wash a garment that just won't come clean. Religion can't do it. Rules can't do it. Paying money can't do it. Like there, it will not come clean with the things of this world. We need something external. And so we, we cry out to God and his character and his ability. And the second thing we confess 
We confess our condition. Look at Psalms uh, 51, 30, uh, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David confesses that his sin has brought him under the judgment of God. And David makes an interesting statement here. Against you, and you only, have I sinned. It's not very hard to to think that, that that might be a mistake that David said right there, because what about Bathsheba? He certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He violated her marriage and her covenant. What about his sin against Uriah? He robbed him of his very life. He had him murdered. So how can David say, against you and you only have I sinned? How do we understand that? I believe David is not minimizing his sin against these two. He is simply looking through it to the greater sin. David violated a marriage covenant, but where did marriage begin? Marriage began as a gift from God as he joined two people together. And so when David violated that marriage, it wasn't just Uriah and Bathsheba he violated. He violated God, God's standard and his law and his good gift. And when David robbed Uriah of his life that was someone created in the image of God that God had breathed life into and David took what was not his to take and so David understands that all sin no matter the consequences to those affected ultimately finds its violation to be against God so when we come to understand repentance it's not just being sorry that I hurt so and so or I did something to this person or that person. It's looking beyond that to understand that every sin I commit is an affront and sin against God. And that is the condition that I'm in. David understands that no matter how he could justify or anything else, it comes down to he had violated the standard of God's law. He stood absolutely guilty before God. And as David understood that, he also understood in verse 5, he says, this is who I am, right? This is who, what my nature is. I was brought forth in this iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not blaming it. Listen, nowhere in this does David make excuses for his sin. He's acknowledging the truth that mankind has fallen and it is in our very nature to choose sin. This is why we do what we do. David gets to the very heart of the matter. I am a sinful person. From the very beginning, I've rebelled. And I imagine him looking over his life and start to think and evaluate the things that he's done and realize that this this sin with Bathsheba and sin against Uriah is merely culmination of a lifetime of little sins, right? Little things, choosing himself, choosing his best, getting what he wants. And now he realizes this has been my bend and my nature for all of my life. This is who I am. More, this was who my mother was. This was who my, her mother was. This is the sin that that this is to be a man is to be sinful, to be full of this inherent nature of sin. And so he's confessing his condition. God, it's not just these actions. I need all of my sins wiped away. 
There's something wrong inside of me. So often our confession only touches our actions. And I wrote this little note. Any confession that doesn't touch our very nature is a confession from a very shallow well. Right? We're just dealing with what's on the surface. Confession, true confession before God is going to the very depths and saying, I can't choose another way. I, I love sin, right? I'm, I'm choosing it daily. This is who I am. And David says, this is my condition before you. Not only have I violated your law, not only have I rebelled against you, I've done it every day. This is who I am. This is my character. And listen, I know that my condition is wrong before you because I know that what you really delight in is truth in my most inward being. And the wisdom you teach is not an external wisdom, it's an inner wisdom. And so David is confessing this condition that what God desires of him is not who he is. Which leads to the third confession. Not only did David confess God's character, not only did he confess his condition, he confessed his need. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What is the need? behind all of that that David prays, to be restored. If we had to sum it up, David wants to be restored. And not necessarily to where he was, but to where God wants him to be. And so he prays these things, purge me with hyssop. And the original singers of this psalm would have immediately thought of God giving this ritual of cleansing a person of leprosy that involved hyssop or the person who had touched his body being cleansed by hyssop. And so he's appealing to God that he has this need that only God can cleanse. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Bring me into right relationship with yourself. Do the, very, the work within me to the very core of who I am. Restore me and uphold me. Listen, not just external, but internal. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. David is aware of his condition before God and the miraculous work that it will take to bring him into right standing with God. Right? No mere formula, no mere ritual can cleanse him. He needs God to supernaturally act on his person if he is to be restored. True confession has to take into account that this is no small matter. That sin is not trivial. That our greatest need is that God has to do something in our hearts. He can't just deal with the outside, the, 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 the results of sin. He's got to deal with the condition of it. And so David pleads, he says, listen, you are the God who is loving and kindful, kind and merciful. You are a God who is just, and I'm a, a sinner to the very nature of who I am. And so my need is that you fix me inside, that you restore me in the inner places, that you would bring me into right relationship with yourself. And if you're going to do that, it has to be a supernatural act on my person. So David 
confesses. And then he moves to the next portion of repentance. Repentance not only comes from conviction and leads us to confession, but it brings us to commitment. And so we'll pick up in verse 13, and we're reminded that repentance is not just turning away from something, right? It's turning to something. It's not just turning away from your sin and your life. It's turning to God. So David says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Notice that the first thing David commits is a renewed obedience to God. Then David has faith that God will answer his prayer and restore him, and he's expectantly looking forward to walking in that restoration. But notice this. This is no bargaining chip for David, right? It's not, if you forgive me, then I'll serve you, right? Because we try that, don't we? God, if you'll do this, if you'll heal this person, if you'll give me this job, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, then I will. David says, I need restoration and forgiveness, and then I'm going to walk in commitment. to your, I'm going to obey you. Not as a bargaining chip, but as a result of your great mercy and love and kindness. As, as a result of your restoration, I'm going to walk in obedience. Listen, God is not to be manipulated This is a response to the great mercy and grace of God. If you have any sense of trying to manipulate and earn God's favor and his forgiveness, you don't understand repentance at all. Because we've already confessed that we deserve nothing from God, right? We've already confessed that at our very core, we are hopelessly sinful. We, there is no bargaining with God. We come to God, and only because of his mercy and his grace can we walk in obedience. So David, looking forward to this moment of forgiveness and restoration, he says, then I will obey you. There's a renewed sense of obedience. There's a renewed sense of worship, Psalm 15, uh, 51, 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David is brought to a place where he realizes that sacrifices in and of themselves are not the point. David is not calling for the the abolishment of the system that God instituted. What he's calling for is that the, the, the hearts of the people would be consistent with what they were doing in their sacrifice and their worship. He realizes it's not the point to sacrifice. It's the heart of the worshiper that God delights in, right? And so David says, listen, it's, it's not the sacrifices you delight in. What does God need? Everything is God's. There's nothing man can do for God. It's not the thing. It's the heart bringing the offering to God. And so David says, you don't delight in burnt offerings or sacrifices. Listen, or I would do that. What I, I know you want is this worship that comes from an inner broken spirit and broken and contrite heart. Knowing who I am and knowing who you are, you will not reject that kind of worship. When we confess our sins and when God restores us, 
we have a renewed sense of not only obedience, and we're going to walk in obedience, but a renewed sense of worship of who he is. A renewed sense of, of what he's done for us. He said, I will, I will declare your praise. That, that my worship will be a, a lifetime of sacrifice, a, a living sacrifice for you. And I will, everything I do will be offered in, from this broken and contrite and humble heart. Those you will not despise. The third thing that we see, this, this commitment, this turning to God, is not only renewed obedience to God, a renewed sense of worship to God, but a renewed desire for holiness in the community. David finishes his psalm. It's been a very private psalm, and now he finishes in this very public manner. In verse 18, he, call, he says this, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David realizes that his sin has the potential to damage all of Israel. Our sin is not just between us and God. Our sin has lasting consequences against those around us. And David realizes that is the sin that he has walked in by committing adultery, by committing murder, will, can have lasting, damaging impacts to, the, to God's family. And so he prays that God would, in his mercy, build up the walls and bring the people into right relationship with him so that worship will continue. When you experience the forgiveness of in the mercy of God, there's a renewed desire for holiness in the community of believers. And I think the reason that we accept so much less than that is because we are not a people who are walking in repentance. So we have no desire for holiness. We have no desire for righteousness. But when we walk in repentance and we have the heart of repentance, it becomes a desire for all of our family to walk in that kind of all of our family to experience that grace and mercy because it is so beautiful because David was so blessed to have the forgiveness and mercy of God he wanted other people to walk in it and for his sin not to be a stumbling block to the nation of Israel that's how you knew David understood the impact of his sin he understood the weight of it and so he, he asked that God would do a work in the community, in the, in the church, in the people. And so this commitment that we have on the other side of, of forgiveness and repentance, it's not just about our obedience to God or his worship. It's about our, our community worshiping God and striving for holiness. But here's where I want to I kind of close. Repentance is not some kind of magic formula, right? The elements convict, confess, and commitment, you, you can't use these as a way to kind of get God to forgive you. I was thinking about this and I was talking to Brittany. I said, you know, it's a lot like when a kid learns the word please, right? It becomes like this magical thing. We even, we even set them up for failure. We say, what's the magic word, right? Please, and they get it. And then they ask for something they that's outside of your will or something that is dangerous for them, right? And every kid I've had has come to the lesson where they realize that please is not a magical word, right? Why? Because it doesn't matter what the word, what we're trying to teach them is the character and intent of their heart, right? Gratitude. So it doesn't matter that they say please because listen, have you ever had a kid say please, right? Doesn't work, does it? 
The attitude of the heart's not right. I don't care. It doesn't matter what they say. Or ask for something with such a sweet heart. Pretty please, daddy, with sugar on top, right? All that. Can I drive the car to the store? No, you're seven. You can't drive the car to the store. So repentance is not about just saying the words, creating me a clean heart, God, restore me, forgive me. Repentance is like understanding that what God wants from us is an inner change. Repentance is a lot like that silly little story. It combines both the heart attitude and aligning ourselves with the will of the Father. That's why repeating a prayer is the least assuring thing you can do. Saying the right words is not some magical formula to have God forgive you. Repentance. Repentance is reacting, responding to the conviction that God puts in your heart that you are going the wrong way. And then you confess that he is God and you're not. And that your very character is one of sin. And there's nothing you can do about it. And you need him to supernaturally act on your heart if you're ever going to change. And listen, that is what confession is. And then commitment is walking in the mercy and grace and freedom on the other side of that. And what David could only hope for, we now know the basis of God's loving kindness and mercy and joy and forgiveness is Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and paid the price as a sinless man so you and I could have forgiveness and mercy. So we could pray this prayer, God, forgive me, have mercy on me. And because God has called us to repentance and because we are trusting in his supernatural work, God will save us. Repentance is not about words. It is a repentant heart. It is about the attitude of our heart and the will of our Father coming together. 